May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In one of the Southern American writer Flannery O'Connor's shortest short stories, she depicts the kind of saccharine, sentimental, pseudo-Christian she skewered so effectively in her prose. The woman in this story despairs of her useless, rudderless, but allegedly grown-up son, Walter, whom she finds absolutely hopeless to cope with any crisis and given to reading weird old theology books that, in her judgment, have no relevance to the present situation and its demands. In the story, she happens across one passage that Walter has been reading and has underlined, and this passage disturbs her. I quote, Since you have already spurned my request, perhaps you will listen to admonishment. What business have you in your father's house, O you effeminate soldier? Where are your ramparts and trenches? Where is the winter spent on the front lines? Listen, the battle trumpet blasts from heaven, and see how our general marches, fully armed, coming amid the clouds to conquer the whole world. Out of the mouth of our king emerges a double-edged sword that cuts down everything in the way. Arising finally from your nap, do you come to the battlefield, abandon the shade, and seek the sun? She turned back in the book to see what she was reading. It was a letter from St. Jerome to a Heliodorus, scolding him for having abandoned the monastic life in the desert. This was the kind of thing her son Walter read, something that made no sense. The story ends with these words. Then it came to her, with an unpleasant little jolt, that the general, with the sword in his mouth, marching to do violence, was Jesus. You may recall, way back at the beginning of lectionary year A, we considered the famous Beatitudes proclaimed by Christ to his disciples. I pointed out then that Jesus, in this first of five such blocks of instructive material in Matthew's Gospel, was teaching his disciples in much the same way as any philosopher or sage of his time might have done. He was saying that there is blessing to be had in the life of peacemaking, of meekness, of poverty 
of spirit. That was the beginning of his teaching. Today's reading is the end of his teaching. If all you have ever encountered of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is the philosopher or sage who exhorted us to a certain style of life, then you are missing the whole story. That Jesus is a teacher like many other such wise thinkers of the time is certainly true, but he is not just a philosopher or sage. He is the eschatological judge of the nations. He is the king. Or as the proper full name of the feast we celebrate today would have it, he is the king of the universe. So if you're thinking of Jesus as a very, very nice man who had some lovely things to say, then you should recognize what the lady in Flannery O'Connor's story recognized, though this may come as a bit of a shock for you as it did for her. Jesus is also the king marching into battle against the world, against the devil, and against death, our last enemy, as St. Paul says. At the end of days, he will sit upon a throne in judgment, surrounded in glory, and all the nations will be gathered before him, all the nations. This business about judgment, of course, makes us a little nervous, maybe a little squeamish. So let me try to bring some clarity to this topic. To judge is simply a way of taking things seriously. If you do not make any determination about what is good and bad, then you are basically saying you don't care. You don't care about good and bad. To judge is to be committed to something that matters. In the Bible, judgment often takes the shape of drawing distinctions. We can see this from the very beginning, from creation itself. The first order of business in creation is to make distinctions. Light is distinguished from darkness, the sun from the moon, the day from the night, the seas from the dry land, and so on. And here, too, in the final judgment, we see something similar happening. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. Jesus Christ has been proclaiming the kingdom of God from the very beginning of Matthew's gospel. And now he tells us that that kingdom was prepared for the righteous from the foundation of the world. The kingdom of Christ is fully realized at the end, but it has been since the beginning. 
Even the word kingdom in English alludes to the notion of judgment. D-O-M is just a shortened form of doom. D-O-O-M, which sounds a little baneful in our ears, right? But in Old English, doom just means judgment. A kingdom is a realm in which the king's judgment holds sway. And the kingdom of Christ was ordained from the foundation of the world, from creation itself. So the judgment exercised by Christ the king at the end of time is ultimately the consummation of the work of creation. The end completes the beginning. And what makes a person an inheritor of this kingdom? What is it that Christ the King judges to be good? I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Deeds. Deceptively simple deeds. But deeds nonetheless. Deeds of care, of concern, of mercy, of consideration. These practical deeds of everyday love for others are in fact deeds done for and to Jesus Christ. Interestingly, the sheep seem surprised to hear this. They have not thought of themselves as directly honoring Christ in their neighbors, but that is, in fact, what they have been doing. That has been their life. The goats are surprised, too. They have not thought of themselves as ignoring Christ in their neighbors, but again, that is, in fact, what they have been doing. Neither the sheep nor the goats know that their actions in life or in actions were directed at Jesus, even though both groups hailed him as Lord. Everyone is equally surprised that their lives are being interpreted by Christ in this way, which just proves that we ourselves are not the best judges of our own lives, 
or what our deeds even mean. Even when we imagine ourselves to be confessing Christ as our Lord. In the end, in the very end, all that matters is what we have done. Or not done. Because you'll notice that the goats are condemned not for extravagant evils and not really on the basis of what they have done at all, so much as on the basis of what they have left undone. The goats are condemned because they encountered the full range of human need, and in response to that need, they did The sheep, on the other hand, are called by Christ the King, blessed of my Father, blessed for their simple acts of practical love. You might remember that when we were considering the Beatitudes, I pointed out that Hebrew and Greek and also Latin all have two words that we translate by one word in English, the word blessed. In Greek, the makarios family of words means blessed in the sense of being fortunate and living well. It's this word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. To be blessed in this way is to be living the right kind of life. It's instructive when appreciating the meaning of words like this to consider what the opposite of a word is. In this case, the opposite of the Makarios family of words in Greek is woe, as in woe unto you who are rich. To be woeful is to be living poorly. The word for blessed used by Jesus here in Matthew 25, however, is not makarios, but rather eulogos, as in to speak well, you good logos speech. To be blessed in this sense is to be the recipient of God's active favor, for God to have positively spoken out in approval of a mode of life or action. The opposite of this word is not woe, but rather cursed. The sheep are not just living well, as in the Beatitudes. The sheep have received God's active and affirmative approval. They have been blessed by him in this more dramatic way. The goats, on the other hand, are not just living and faring poorly. Their indifference, their inaction, 
their failure to intervene has been actively condemned by God. Their lives are not just lamentable. They are cursed. So the distinction here, and therefore the judgment, could not be more sharp. On the one hand, God will condemn as cursed our inattention to human need, our total indifference to our neighbors. On the other hand, the kingdom of Christ is being quietly extended one act of love at a time. Christ is both the source and the recipient of the advancement of his own kingdom in this way. If we take our obligation to love God seriously, we will find that it impels us to love our neighbors. And if we love our neighbors, we in turn honor Christ, the King, who lives secretly in our midst, in our neighbors. It is Christ who commands this, and it's the same Christ who judges us. He is himself the beginning and end of his kingdom. And to live in that kingdom is to live within the circuit of his love. The king commands love. And when we obey, we honor his authority to command, and we honor his judgment of what is really good. All it takes to remove ourselves from the circuit of Christ's love is indifference, inattention, inaction. But meanwhile, the king is on the march. The invitation to obey his commands is not just an invitation to a form of life. It's an invitation to follow him into the battle against sin and death, against indifference, against inattention, against inaction. The sword that proceeds out of the king's mouth is a sword of judgment. It has two edges because it separates good from bad. There's a promise here. There's a promise that if we will obey what he commands, we will inherit with him his kingdom. And thus we will also inherit a share in his kingship. Better to share in this blessing than to be cursed for inaction. Better to follow the advice 
of St. Jerome to Heliodorus. Arising finally from your nap, do you come to the battlefield, abandon the shade, and seek the sun? Amen.